Those of you staying here in the auditorium, would you go to Deuteronomy? The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7, is where we want to get started this morning for one of the verses. Deuteronomy, chapter 7. But while you're turning, and if you need the notes, the fellows are going to walk through the auditorium and they have some extra notes in hand. Let me uh, just do this just to wake up our minds. If our voices didn't get woken up by that song, let's do this with our minds. Other than jewelry, what is the most expensive single item in your house? Don't say your spouse. That is not an answer up here. Okay. Okay. Your computer, that's going to be one of the answers. Cell phone, I don't remember if that's one of them. TV is going to be up there. Appliances are going to be up there. Anything else? Did somebody say their dog? Okay, that can be anymore. Okay, they're expensive at times. Here's, here's what they put down. They said your car. I'm not sure what that means in your house, but I guess the garage counts. Money, collectibles, computer, appliance, furniture. Number one is your TV set. Here's one. Name things people often post on their social media. Vacations. Other stuff on, on social media. I don't know because I'm off of it, but go ahead. What's that? Food? Do, do you really? Is that right? Did they put recipes in all two or just what they had? Okay. Okay. What else? Anything else? Selfies is going to be up there. Family things, pictures of grandkids. Here's what they put down. Party pictures, info about outings with friends, announcements, personal updates, vacation pics, selfies, and number one answer was way too much. Okay? That's true. That's true. Some people get themselves in trouble by putting way too much. Let me warn parents, okay, because we've dealt with this on several occasions. Please guard what your kids put up. Make sure you monitor it. We have had more than one or two instances where there have been threatening situations come by young people putting up too much data, and there are predators out there, and it even happens in Lebanon County. And in this last year, we were aware of a couple different situations where some young ladies put way too much information, and they almost got themselves into some serious, serious, dangerous situations uh, from some folk. Anyway, on a humorous note, name a reason why you might see someone running. Maybe you're running or somebody else. Exercise. Exercise. Running from a dog. Okay, okay. Anything else? What's that? Robbery. What do you mean? Doing it or getting robbed? Okay. Both of them are going to be up there, actually. Anything else that you might see people running? Late for something. Here we go. They broke the law. They're escaping harm. They're playing a game. They're catching, trying to catch someone, plane, train, bus, taxi, or for exercise. Name something you never leave home without it. Sounds like a commercial. Keys. What did you say? Your cell phone? Yeah. Yeah. It, but you, you make sure you don't lock yourself out of the house, so take your keys. It would never happen, Nancy, would it? Just, yeah, I just did. I just did announce it to everybody. <laughs> what else do you take? Your driver's license? Money, your car. Here's what they said. Your car, your kids, your money, your keys, your wallet, your purse, and your cell phone. Name a profession. I'm offended by this one. Name a profession that even an ugly person can become famous. 
Radio. <laughs> what else? What's that? Circus. Ah, that's not up there. What's that? Politics? Politics? Anybody else? Musicians? Okay, here's what I don't understand. Preaching. I don't understand that. I hope none of you had filled that out. Okay. Writing, acting, politics, radio, and sports was number one. So we're taking our Bibles and we're headed into a study that we've been talking about Bible difficulties. I have a difficulty now. My image is, self-image is really harmed by that survey. But um, we're talking about Bible difficulties in theology and questions that people often come up with. And so we've dealt with, and we know the scriptures encourages us that we're supposed to be able to give an answer. And so we've dealt with a number of these questions already. Okay, And what I want to continue and wrap up today is this question, which is a very important question in our culture today. And where did different races come from? It is very interesting. You just told me this morning, you got a book that was from a Yale professor, 1890s. It was a geography book. And you said in this geography book from the 1890s, they were talking about there's six different races of people, if not more. Some lowest people are so inferior, they can't count to five. And so this book of that era propagated this idea. And then they would put low-level, different classes of people that because they are totally incapable of taking care of themselves, I would assume, they would have to be taken care of by others. But that was a popular geography book written, and it was common, common thinking at that time that even a Yale professor... And you said they did throw in some scripture in this geography book. They used the Genesis 9 passage the quote-unquote curse of Ham, and some other passages. And so we've been, we've been refuting that idea. And in our conversation, and there's a lot of material, we've, we're concluding from scriptures that all peoples descended from Adam and Eve, and then eventually from Noah's family. Therefore, with that in mind, all of us are related historically. All peoples, all nationalities, all linguistic groups, all people groups are related, and we are, quite frankly, as God says, we are made of one blood. With that in mind, we went a little bit further. We said that all people equally possess within the creation. Okay, we're not talking about the salvation image of God. We're talking about the creation's image of God. Everybody possesses that. All people. In fact, generations later in Genesis 9, if you took somebody's life, you were attacking the image of God, which is in people innately from generation to generation. We're all of one race. And biblically speaking, that idea of race is one species or one kind. They shall, they shall, um, <clears throat> they shall produce after their kind, after their species. And, and we know that's true, that all people, no matter what their nationality, their subgroup, people can cohabitate, they can uh, procreate other people. So it doesn't stop because of you know, racial or skin color. So that's why the Bible uses terms humanity, mankind, the world, when referring to people. The distinctions in the Bible are nations, tribes, tongues, but never races. Because we're one race, to be biblically exact. So with that in mind, we came to this conclusion, we are one race with multiple variations. Just like there is, and I don't mean to equate people, because people are not, not part of animals. Okay, People are a different group than animals in creation. We didn't evolve from animals. We were created in the image of God. Animals are not in the image of God. But within that, within even the animal kingdom, we understand 
that they developed different different variations that eventually came into, like in animals, we call them a breed. And in the same, same type of a parallel, people developed into different classifications where physical characteristics stood out within those generations after generations to become more common. So we're one race with variations, no one group okay, that wrote that book. No one group is inherently superior or inferior to another group just because of physical features that differ. And that we can't say, okay, we are, we are inferior to somebody else just because we're of this people group, or vice versa. And so to teach and to operate that way is contrary to the Bible, and racial prejudice is wrong. There's just no way about it. You just can't get away from it from scriptures. And last week, we talked about several reasons why prejudice is wrong in the sense of because of finances or because of, uh, because of a skin color. And we taught that because Jesus was against prejudice. There was a steep, just in, uh, in uh, just... It was just ingrained in his society that the Samaritans were inferior to the Jews. Well, Jesus, Jesus went against that. There was ingrained in society, ladies were inferior, so a rabbi should never talk to ladies. Did Jesus take time to talk to ladies and minister them? Yes, yes, several different occasions. So all men died without exception. I'm sorry, Jesus died for all men without exception, all individuals. The gospel is to go to all nations. God himself is not prejudiced. We had multiple verses we gave you for each of these. Prejudice was clearly discouraged in the church. No difference between Jew and Gentile, between the rich and the poor. Uh, there, there wasn't supposed to be an attitude of superiority. In fact, superiority is based on pride, that I'm better than you. For whatever reasons, I'm better than you. There, that, that's just wrong. Humility is the attitude that's taught. Okay, by the example and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so we, we were concluding with this last week, asking ourselves, okay, do we have a modicum of prejudice? Most of us would say, I'm not prejudiced. But we're just, uh, and we pose these questions to ask ourselves. Somebody made a very good observation, and I wanted to just have you think about this. They said, um, we are not to be discriminating, but we still need to be discerning. Does that make sense to you? In what, it's, in what instances? Somebody might accuse you of being prejudiced, but you say, I'm not being prejudiced, I'm just trying to be discerning. Okay. 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 Is there times in? Is there times that? Um, let me give you a, a real, real situation. In China, what they still have going, they have class groups in China, and in these class groups, be based on some of where they live, okay, and regions where they live. These class groups, it is still a very predominant part of Chinese culture even today. And uh, in that culture, and I forget, it's the Han group and, another, and two other groups. But the one group that, um, that is really put down is they, they will live close to them, 
but they do not want that one group to be in positions of leadership if you are in this other large culture. So what was happening is the, the ministry that we're associated with in China, what they were doing is they were trying to teach people. And they had a student there that was a very, very bright young man. And they, didn't, and they didn't understand some of these cultural things. It wasn't being presented in a real blatant way. But they were encouraging this young man, and they were helping him to start a house church in this one group. And as soon as they helped get, recommend this young man to this group of people, this group of people, after a couple meetings with them, they were like, no, we don't want... We don't want this man to be our pastor. And it, they, didn't, they didn't know that it was based upon their culture still there that was saying um, he's of that one tribe and if he's going to be our leader, we are going to have a real problem of him being the church house leader. And they said, we would like to accept him, but we will not get, we, we will have a stymie to the gospel. What would you do? What would you do in that case? Would you say, gut it up, get through? Or would you say, hey, listen, why don't we help you to work with a different group that that may not be a problem? Maybe maybe an option. It's not it's not that I'm discriminating, but his ministry may be limited. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're bringing up the idea that we, as a church, would not. We, we if if somebody came along and said, "I wanted to," we we right now have nobody to play the organ. We wouldn't do this. This is this is not the way we operate because we go by membership only to be able to be involved with those things. But if we were a church that would hire an instrumentalist, what could we get in trouble? Refusing to hire at this point. Somebody who would be an openly gay individual, we would have, we, we could get a lawsuit against us. Okay? But our basis of this would be on a spiritual basis, but could that get us into trouble in a social aspect? Okay. Um, and so that's a possibility. I'm going to give you one that, that you're not going to like me to bring this up. Okay? But let me ask you a question. Okay? Are interracial marriages sinful, okay, or wrong? Has there been a time that our country and churches have said interracial marriage was wrong? Yes. Okay? Schools have gotten into trouble with this in the 80s. And Bob Jones was one of those schools that got into huge, they lost all their tax-exempt status 
because they were of the ilk at that time with dealing with interracial dating. Okay? In fact, when I, I left here and I had two, years, two and a half years ministry elsewhere uh, since 79, and I left here and started a church, when I candidated for that church, um, there was, I don't know how many people there were that voted, 11 people, something like that. It was just a small group we were starting. But there was one negative vote. And I only found out months later that the one negative vote was because somebody asked me a question. Would you do a wedding for an inter, interracial couple? And I said, yes, absolutely. That I didn't see anything wrong with it. But they had been taught all their life that it was wrong. Where does that teaching come from? See, there's, there's, two, there's passages that are used for this. In Deuteronomy chapter 7... There's a verse that's used in this text, and I want you to understand where it's coming from. It says in verse 3, Neither shall you make marriage with them. Your daughter you shall not give unto your son, uh, nor his daughter. I'm sorry, your daughter you shall not give to his son, nor his daughter shall you take unto thy son. And so what they're saying in this text is that Israel's not supposed to be intermarrying with other tongues, nationalities. And then others who advocate the idea jump to the New Testament and would say, and you referenced this just moments ago, in 2 Corinthians 6, where it says, Be ye not unequally yoked. And therefore, there should not be interracial marriages based on those two texts. I personally think that that is a misinterpretation, misapplication of the Scriptures. Okay, for these reasons. Okay, Deuteronomy 7 is not talking about a racial basis that you may look different. It is talking about a religious difference. Because if you look at this entire context, he's talking, when the Lord thy God shall bring you into the land, whether you go to possess it, verse 1, he's talking about, well, you're not supposed to do that because, verse 4, you're not supposed to intermarry. They will turn away your son from what? What's he say in that verse? Following me that they may serve other gods. It is a religious issue. It is not a racial skin color issue. And it is the, that idea. That's why it was historically. Same thing in Second Corinthians chapter 6. It is a spiritual issue. And by the way, this spiritual issue isn't just going to define marriage in that text. It could be in close relationships of business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that he's warning, warning the believers, be careful getting yourself really tied into a situation, a contract, at a marriage situation that you may have totally different viewpoints and it could really, really become a disaster in time. But it's based upon a spiritual worldview aspect. It's not upon skin color. Okay, it doesn't talk about that at all in the text. In fact, there was a racially skin tone difference in marriage. Do you remember Moses married an Ethiopian woman? And she was of a different skin color. And do you remember who gave Moses a hard time about it? Anybody remember? His brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron. Gave him a hard time. And as a result, they were chastened by the Lord. 
because of this non-acceptance of somebody who wanted to be a part of the Jewish religious system, but they were refusing based upon skin color. Apparently, that's the only thing that we know of out of the text. And so there was a rebuke. They had to park and stop the wilderness wanderings because these two, if I'm not mistaken, this is time they're afflicted with leprosy for a short term. And so the, that idea, these, these are dealing with spiritual unity factors. And yet, with that in mind, might somebody have to be discerning? Not discriminating, but discerning. I'll give you an illustration. We had uh, years ago, years ago early in the ministry, we had um, a couple come to me, and the young man was uh, was white. I mean, he was white, okay? And he met a beautiful young Christian woman, and she was dark-skinned. And I mean, she was dark-skinned. The two of them were like polar opposites. And they wanted to get married. And they asked if I would do the wedding. I said, sure, but, you know, you want to go into ministry. And they wanted to go into ministry. I felt it my duty, and I would still, you know, not so much anymore. But at that time, we're talking in the 80s. At that time, uh, he wanted to go to the mission field. And it was, you need to think this thing through. Because not everybody is going to accept an interracial couple. I'm going back to the 80s. Was it, was it rarer in the 80s? Yes. Could it be an issue for churches in raising support to go to the mission field? It could be. Could it be a problem in certain areas that you would want to go to minister? Yes, no? Yeah. What areas may they want to stay out of in ministering? Any, any particular regions that could be a problem in the United States? In an interracial... Yeah, some places, some places down south. Could it be just the opposite? Could, they, could there be a racial bias against him, her marrying a white guy? Could that create a problem? And so our conversation wasn't that it is sinfully wrong... But you need to think this through. Yes, no. Okay. For instance, in Europe at that time, it was very common that there was, there was black-white marriages. But the one in Europe at that time in the 80s that was a real issue was... Anybody remember back then? Because it affected some missionaries. It was Asiatic and Caucasian was the issue in Europe. And part of that was still post post World War II, post Korean, okay, and that was still a factor there. And so that so my conversations wasn't that you're doing sin, but you need to think through a few things, okay? Because and 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 any time we sit and counsel somebody, we want to challenge them to think through life generally. Yes, no. Okay, with marriage. Is marriage just something easy? No, yes? Okay, anybody says yes, your spouse is going to look at you like, what? Okay. (laughs) Marriage has its own complications, just any two people. Correct? 
Yeah, everybody can say yes on that one. Okay, nobody's going to be uh, smacked. Okay, it's, it's got its own elements of having to work together. But if you are going to have an interracial marriage, and again, this isn't so much today. It, it isn't an issue as it used to be. But as it used to be, you may want to say, hey, we need to think about what? What do you mean about kids? The kids end up having a different, diff, more difficult time. Okay, I'll give you a culture that some of you that, that you say, well, you know, it shouldn't be. In the Southwest, when we go and work with the Indians on the reservation, guess what issue comes up? If one of the Indians were to marry a white guy or gal, and does it does it affect even today? Does it affect family relationships in that culture? It does. It does. And guess who gets the hardest pressure put upon them? The kids. Okay. And so it's a matter of thinking through and saying, okay, those aren't forbidden, but they should consider the culture and mores of where they're going to live. Okay. If this is going to be an issue, then for for what happens there in the Midwest is or uh, in the Southwest area, is typically when they marry, you know. Anglo and Indian, then what is often the result, the response? We're not going to live on the reservation. We're going to move away from the reservation, or there's going to be a lot of difficulties. Fine. Think it through. Okay? The impact of the union may have on either spouse. You know, you may be accepting of somebody of a different background. And by the way, this isn't even skin color. Can this happen on a financial level? Can this happen with different backgrounds? And it used to not be, or it's not this way, but go back 50, 60 years in America. It was German, Italian, because in the immigration thing, it was mixing nationalities, and you have to think it through. Okay, how's it going to affect, you know, the treatment of the other group, the impact upon children, family, and friends? And will the union, and this was my discussion with this young couple because they wanted to go into vocational Christian ministry, and it was how will this union impact your service for Christ? Can they still serve Christ? The answer is absolutely, but they may not be able to go to certain areas. Not the whole world may not be open to them. Is that being prejudiced? Or is it being discriminating and being wise about, okay, I'm I'm going to have to take these into account and be wise in what I do. Um, Do you remember, and, and again, this isn't quite the same thing, uh, Travis and Christine got married, Tra- Ulrichs, and they went to Indonesia on a survey of a missions trip. And they were they were very interested in going and working in Indonesia, and uh, Doug Miller even took them on a trip. Some of you will remember this. Travis and Christine, fair-skinned, blonde, very blonde. Do you remember why they ended up not going to Indonesia? Not that they didn't have a heart for the people, 
But they said that what happened while they were doing, they were, in a, they were in a zoo. And then right after that, they went and visited a museum. Guess who became the focal point of the pictures? By the people who were around them. They were. And their discernment said, you know what? This may not be the best field for us. Because... We stick out way too much. Okay? That's just being discerning. That's just plain being discerning. Now, you were telling me, or somebody was, that you can change your um, skin, color. skin color with the different injections. But, um, but again, I, I, there's this line between dis- being discriminating and a line between being discerning. Be discerning, Ken. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think? And you, and you really have to... Wouldn't you think that in being discriminating, you need more information than simply they're, they're different? You need to know the culture. You need to know the circumstances. You need to be wise. And, uh, you know, some of you, some of you could be accused of discriminating when you choose where you put your kids for school. Right? Okay. You discriminated because you won't put your kids in. Okay. Was it discrimination or was it, hey, I'm doing what's, what I can do and how I'm going to provide and what I think is best, what I need for, with my kids. And so that, it, it affects all different levels of life. And so that's a topic that is a hot topic. And again, I'm going to... I would gladly, if they're both born again and they are confident and the families are supportive, I have no problem personally doing an interracial, quote-unquote, marriage. I see nothing wrong biblically. Just that they think these things through and, uh, and you know, work wisely. But there is nothing, thus saith the Lord, that says it's wrong. Nor should we be biased or discriminating against it. So, let's do this. Let's get into the issue and try to answer this question that keeps on coming up and will come up. Okay? And this is going to be an attack on our Bible. It's why doesn't our Bible condemn slavery? And so, with that in mind, we know that our Bible says servants obey your masters. Not once, but multiple times. And so, the way to give an answer is for you to go back, and can you just mention with discerning, let's go back and let's understand the context in the comments, servants obey your masters. And let's be able to answer wisely why our Bible said that in that time and in that period of time. Number one, let me make this observation. The Bible clearly condemned any and all forms of prejudice. Okay? That whole idea that one group is inferior. That whole system of American slavery, which is an absolute shame and embarrassment on our country's history. Okay? With that in mind... We don't advocate what they had in their minds at that time. That one group was inferior, innately inferior. Couldn't even come, what did you say? They couldn't come up to five? Okay, it was some of that teaching at that time. <clears throat> Our Bible doesn't advocate that. 
Our Bible doesn't advocate what happened in the American slave system. For that reason, the prejudice is wrong. Number two, it is a mistake. It is a mistake if you study, number one, to assume that slavery in the Bible is the same thing as slavery in American history. We're going to show you culturally, historically, they were not the same things. They had some similarities, but they had a lot of dissimilarities. So it's a mistake to do that. The reason I say that is in the ancient Near East, slavery uh, that, that happened back then had this type of things, okay? They, they did have people. They had some of the slaves worked in the mines. They rowed the boats. The pictures, the Hollywood that we know of, that they were in gladiatory games. That was some of the slaves, that it was life and death, and it was cruel and brutal in that sense. But most of it, the vast majority of it, slaves amongst the Jews and Romans, did it, the slave system was not targeting based upon skin color or racial thing, race, race and that idea of skin tone. The Old Testament law and the New Testament epistles, they required that who were called slaves... Okay, that they be re, they be respected, that they be treated and taken care of, not with, not abused. As well, many were cared for. Do you remember that Jesus is preaching and a centurion comes up to him and says, "I want you to heal my servant." That was more of the norm that the masters had this practical, uh, a practical concern for their slaves. And it wasn't just economic, okay? Because the way that a lot of the slave system worked in the ancient world is these people became part of your family, part of your household, as we'll see and we'll point out. In the Jewish culture and often in the Roman Empire, slavery was voluntary, a lot of it, oh yes, I know there was conquest. And I know that there was some of the, But the, the large portion, especially in the Jewish culture, okay, slavery was based upon... What, what was the reason for slavery? What's that? Debt. Debt was the number one... And in the Roman Empire... If you do your research, the number one reason that people, in, they enslaved themselves was to help take care of their debts, to take care of being able to get started. They would enslave themselves by mutual contract, both in Rome and in the Jewish cultures. The vast majority in the ancient were basically what we would call not slaves, but indentured servants. By the way, America was founded upon indentured servants. You understand that? Yes, no? You studied the whole Jamestown experiment. It was the, the laborers were all indentured servants. The people who came basically said, I'm going to have you do what? You pay for my voyage you help me get across. We're going to do this community thing, and I will work for you. Typically, do you remember what it was back in those days? Seven years. I will work for you for seven years, and then I get my freedom. While I work for you, I also get a subpar salary that I can save up. That's indentured servants. 
That is the majority of slavery in the Old Testament uh, with the Jewish society and often in Rome, Roman's history as well. And so it was a mutually contracted situation which explains Colossians 4. Colossians 4 says to the masters, Give to your servants that which is just and equal. What's he talking about? He's talking about paying them a fair wage, even though they're your indentured servant. You can't assume and not pay them because this is the arrangement that mo- that was mostly there. And say equal in what? Equal in, you know, if they're doing the same work, same, you know, same wages type of thing. Uh, slaves in both the Jewish culture and Roman Empire were often workers that did much more than field work. Okay, again, we get Spartacus, we get all these, we get Ben-Hur, and it looks like slaves, and we get the concept. Everyone worked the mines, everyone, you know, fought to kill off people. In, in ancient times, some of the, the doctors, the teachers, the artisans, a lot of the merchants were indentured servants to somebody else to help them get started. And so they would have been called slaves in that regard. Many were educated and trained at their master's expense. It was not illegal to educate your slaves in the Roman Empire. Does that differ from American slavery? Drastically, drastically different. So it's a mistake to compare. By the way, it's a mistake when you study this topic or any topic to select a few verses and not study in depth the many passages. This is of any truth. Okay? This is of any truth. You can't just pick out... I've said it to you multiple times. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can, you can grab it. You can find some phrase, some, something out of context to support what you, you, know, what you want But if you're going to do this study, do the study in depth and get the full picture of it. And by the way, just because God allowed certain things, it doesn't mean God approved of them. Can you think of anything in the Old Testament that that Jesus said God allowed it, but God didn't approve of it? Divorce, right? They said, but Moses gave us a law of divorce. And Jesus responds, because of the hardness of your heart. Okay? It doesn't mean he advocated for it. It means this is something he tried to limit that was within the culture. The same thing is true in this whole regard. If you study now with that in mind that God is trying to limit, you will get a whole different perspective of this whole topic here. Because a number of the Old Testament laws that dealt with our term in English, slavery, when it talks about slaves, a number of the Old Testament laws that deals with this, it elevated those people. It protected those people. What I mean by that is this. Old Testament regulations, okay? Old Testament regulations, if you were to look up Exodus 21, verse 16, it says that men-stealing was wrong. Men-stealing is doing what? Raiding someplace, 
taking the people and turning around and sell them. In that verse, it says, if you are guilty of men stealing, taking away somebody's, somebody's freedom, contrary to their personal allowance of it, you were guilty of a crime that you, could give, you were supposed to have your own life taken. Capital punishment under the Old Testament law for those who would do what is typically American slavery. The Bible condemned it. Okay, as well, slavery was uh, most all slavery was a result of paying off personal debt. Read this whole passage; you'll see what I'm talking about. It was almost voluntary, and in the Old Testament, you could not keep somebody as a slave beyond six years because what happens on the seventh year? A jury, all the debt is is wiped clean. And so there was not this idea under Old Testament law that you would have perpetual slavery that would go beyond, 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 that, that, like American. It wasn't there. However, was there allowance for somebody who said, I like this arrangement. I am working for Jim. I have put myself as a servant, quote-unquote in our English it's translated slave, I've become a slave. He's helped. You know, he's given me employment. I'm working for him. I'm farming my farm. He's getting a bulk of my profits, but I'm allowed to keep that. And this is a great arrangement personally. It's providing me security. I want to keep on going beyond the six, seven years. Was there allowance in the Old Testament for that? Yes. What would you do to show that you did this? You'd go to the post of the door. You would pierce your ear, and you would be marked then that you are now his indentured servant for who would decide that that would be done? It was a mutual thing. It was a mutual thing. Was that the case in American history? No. No. Totally different. Totally different. Uh, Jews were forbidden to sell somebody that was a debtor slave to them. You could not sell your, your Jewish servant to another Jew. If they were indebted to you, they were indebted to you. Okay? To be able to take care of it. To physically harm one of your servants in this way resulted in punishment. Or you had to release the per- person from their indebtedness. Totally different than what we have in American history. If a Jew brought, bought a foreigner to be their slave, they were to be well-treated, and you were to instruct them in the ways of becoming a proselyte into Judaism. And so all of that, that was totally different than what, what is, you know, when, when you say, well, the Bible uh, allowed this. It did, in a totally different context than what happened in American Slavery. Now, in the Roman world, okay, where the church was beginning, slaves made up the large portion of the population. They had strict laws to guard the institution, especially after a certain thing happened. A certain popular character came on the scene and started a revolt. Anybody remember? TV movie. Spartacus, okay? 
And then they, then they put in some limitations. But then those limitations, after a period of time, they, they, there was a lot of reform with it. And so slaves typically came from conquest of lands. We understand that that happened. Indebtedness was the great amount. Born to those who were slaves by whatever arrangement, voluntarily entering into the slave arrangement, never based upon solely upon skin color. That wasn't in the Roman, in their, their idea. But most of the time, it was indebtedness and temporary arrangement. Once again, indentured servant. In the, uh, according to empirical law, the empires under the Caesars, slaves could not represent themselves in legal matters. Slaves, when it came to search and seizure, they didn't have much protection like you have protection. Okay? When it came to the masters, they chose your occupation. You were indebted to them. They would choose what you were going to be trained in. As well, they could determine where you would live. On the flip side, okay, and you have to understand this as well. In 2 BC, this is close to the New Testament, Augustus Caesar passed this law which strictly limited manumission. That is freeing your slaves. This frustrates me so bad. People who will not study history, but they get this social crusade going. Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they had slaves. If they really believed in freedom, they would have freed them. They couldn't read your history. It was illegal under the laws in colonial America to free a certain number of enslaved, enslaved individuals, even in a bad slave system, if they did it, they'd go to jail themselves. Okay? And so we need people's actions based upon 2022. You can't do that. You just can't do that. You know, if... if, if I, anyway, it just frustrates me. Just the lack of... The lack of education that is taking place historically. It's just, it's a socially run edu- history session that is just like people, if, you're, if you don't know history correctly, you're bound to repeat the mistakes. And it's just, it just bugs me. Slaves could keep portions of their earnings. Many slaves came to own property, even had their own slaves. They were educated and trained. They could file complaints legally. This was part of the reform that was coming into place in the latter part of the first century in, uh, in the Roman Empire. So if you were abusive as a master, you could be reported, fined by the government, or taken uh, other action. A large portion of slaves were professional households, and as a result, they became part of the family. It is interesting If you go through the book of Ephesians and Colossians where it talks about family, right after family, it talks about servant-master relationships tied in the same context of household living. Why? Because this became, you know, uh, relationships were, were very, very interesting. Many of the slaves lived better off than the poor free men. Masters took care of the slaves. We already illustrated that. So food for thought is this. Probably what we should be doing in our New Testament English Bibles is stop using the idea of slave and use servant. Because in our English, slave has a 
negative connotation, but servant elevates it to a more acceptable situation. And that's probably the better terminology if we understand historically that we should be doing. And so I'm going to try to do that for the rest of this. The New Testament elevated the servants in your household. The servants in your household, okay, you were supposed to be respectful of them. You were to treat them properly. All these different texts you can read and study yourself. In Colossians, he makes it very clear. Your servants on a spiritual plane are your brothers and sisters. Yes, you have distinction. You are the head of the household. You have servants. And the servants, um, I'm going to say it wrong, is it Downington Abbey? Yeah, you got it. Okay. Okay. Was there a distinction between who lived on the top floor and who lived in the bottom floor? Yes. But did those people have freedom to quit and go elsewhere? They were servants. Okay. And so he's saying in this, you treat with respect the servants in your household, their brothers and sisters. In fact, Paul returns Philemon, who had run away. And yet Paul says, Philemon, I wish you would do something. I wish you would free Onesimus to come and work with me. You know, he's a profitable individual. And so it would be helpful for ministry's sake if you took this act and, and freed him. In the, uh, the, just what, what we know in American history is condemned in Scripture in the New Testament. The term men-stealing shows up in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And I want you to catch something. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and just get a sense of where we're at with this text. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at the paragraph. 1 Timothy 1. It's in your New Testament. Okay. If you have a Schofield Bible, it's 1274. Okay. In 1 Timothy, I want you to see men's stealing is classified with what other type of sins. 1 Timothy chapter, 10, uh, chapter 1. Let's do verse 9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy, profane. Now he starts categorizing what, and what categorizes ungodliness. The, profanity, the profane living, for sin, sinful living. Murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, whoremongers, which is the idea of just anybody involved with any type of immorality sexually. For them that defile themselves with mankind. We understand what that is. Yes, no? What's, what's defile yourself with mankind? Homosexuality. For men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, if there be anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine. Men-stealers is what was practiced in that, in that history time of going and capturing people, raiding communities, bringing them to a different land against their will, and selling them. In the book of Revelation, he's talking about um, the uh, city of Babylon, the whore Babylon, which is going to be Antichrist, one world capital empire. And he describes what they are going to do in commerce that is so evil. And it includes in that passage that idea of selling slaves and the souls of men. It's the same word, okay, men-stealers. And so it's condemned as part of that wicked future Babylon. So in the New Testament, the New Testament speaks against what was in American history 
that we know as the slave system. So why didn't the boat writers boldly speak for total abolition? Okay, we wish they did. It'd sure make it easier in answering today. But let's let's think this through. They did oppose what was done in American history. That we know. They did elevate their servants to a higher status than what was even done in the culture at that time. Their primary mission was the spiritual regeneration of souls, not social reformation. That primary mission is still upon us today. Our primary mission isn't to clean the streets of America by advocating and spending all of our energies on social reform. There's nothing wrong with being concerned about. There's nothing wrong with making, making our views known. But our primary mission as born-again believers is to do what? Preach the gospel so that people change from the inside out. That's our primary mission. Evangelism, not the idea of education or reformation. Am I against the abortion of, of thousands and thousands and thousands? Absolutely. But my primary mission is to be advocating the Word of God and getting people saved. If you get people saved, the more people get saved, the less abortions are going to take place. Okay? Um, so that our primary, you have to determine what is your primary mission. Christianity is based on changing people, not from the, in, the outside in or from the top down. Okay? The, uh, that idea. We can elect. We can elect a born-again individual to be the president of the United States. I'd be all for that. We can elect a, that person. But that doesn't, mean that, that doesn't mean that our job is done. Our job is to get the gospel out. Because a lot of people could be good citizens and still be lost and going to hell. Okay, so it's not social reform. It is, this, it is evangelism that we're supposed to be about. So the idea is if you change people from the inside out, it's going to be a permanent change. Okay, so keeping on this same topic here, it was a totally different world for the first century Christians. Totally different world than we live in. We live in America and we say this, why didn't they change the law how many were there how many christians in the first century were there not many were they a legal body no they were they were illegal they had what political clout did the christians have in the first century none they were being persecuted up until when? 320s. Until Constantine comes in and makes Christianity legal enough that they don't have to die. And so what, what political, what, what social change could they bring about? So you think this through. The church had no political power or influence in its infancy. 
Their focus was evangelism. The legal system allowed for slavery to take place. They had no say in trying to get a change 